Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. Also, please note we are recording from our homes via Zoom, so please forgive us for any sound issues. At Sakara, we seek to provide the educational tools to help our community understand the impact that the food we eat, the products we use, and the lifestyle choices we make have on our mind, body, and spirit. And today, we're sitting down with Dr. Leonardo Trasande to discuss bisphenols, phthalates, pesticides, and other toxic chemicals, how they impact our health, economy, and more. Dr. Leo is the Director of the Division of Environmental Pediatrics and Vice Chair for Research in Pediatrics at NYU School of Medicine. He's also the author of Sicker, Fatter, Poorer, and is internationally renowned for his work with examining health policy and economics to understand how they impact our medical care. Much of his work focuses on documenting the economic costs for the lack of prevention of disease and how we can minimize our own exposure to toxic chemicals. Please join us in welcoming Dr. Leonardo Trasande. The first question we like to ask is, what is your mission here on Earth? What are you here to do? I'm here to protect people from chemical hazards in the environment. And can you talk a little bit about what got you into this? I mean, I love the intersection of what you study and the chemicals in our environment and then being a pediatrician. So can you talk about what led you to, like, were you a pediatrician first? Did you dig into the chemicals and toxins in our environment or where was the intersection and why? It was not a linear path. I applied to medical school during the debate around the Clinton healthcare plan. This is going way back. And I kept getting questions in my interviews asking my opinion about the plan. And during one of these interviews, and I still can't remember which school, I asked a question back to the interviewer, which is almost never a good thing. (laughs) And I asked, well, you know, I don't know in part because I don't get health policy training I was a chemistry major, so in chemistry as an undergrad. Uh, can you tell me whether your school provides healthcare policy training? And the reaction was not good. It was just a blank stare of a response. I don't think I got into that medical school. Uh, <laughs> but that really sparked an aha moment for me. It made me realize I'd gone straight from college to medical school, that I could use a detour and go ahead and learn better about the policymaking process. So I decided to spend a year between my third and my fourth year medical school, having done a bunch of my rotations in the hospital. And uh, I went to the Kennedy School of Government and got a master's in healthcare policy. And I would say there I had my first transformative experience. I was exposed to a bunch of people outside medicine and public health. It was a very broad-based curriculum full of people I wouldn't have otherwise interacted with. And that infected me, if you will, with capital fever. And I decided to do my residency and take another detour after residency to get more training and experience in the policymaking process. I had learned the theory in my master's, but wanted to apply it in action. And I had the privilege of working for then Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton on children's and environmental policy. And I said, well, okay, I've got the child policy part down and the child health care policy in particular, but the environmental part, I'll figure it out. I wasn't worried. 
Well, boy, was I in for a surprise. I basically had my world turned upside down. I learned so much. The average medical student gets two, three hours still to this day of environmental health in the curriculum. And that's partly because the medical curriculum is typically a treatment curriculum more than it is a prevention curriculum, let's be honest. So I learned a little bit about air pollution, a little bit about lead, but I hadn't learned anything about the suite of chemical exposures that particularly kids are exposed to. So in that year, I realized I had an opportunity in my career to devote myself to protecting people from hazards in the environment in a way that wouldn't be the typical approach to practicing a medical career. Say my parents would have wanted me to set up a shingle somewhere in New Jersey, maybe, and go take care of kids and come home every day and, and just repeat in the morning. But I realized that I wanted to have this career where I could influence people's lives, not just one prescription at a time, but maybe a hundred or a thousand or even more kids at a time on a broad-based impact. It's incredible. And you're known, and I follow you on Instagram and What you talk about a lot is the products that we're using, the chemicals that leach into the environment, and then the long-term, well, short and long-term impact on our bodies and our endocrine system. So for our listeners, can you kind of give a 101 on the endocrine system and high level what these chemicals are that you're concerned about and what they're doing? Sure. So as I've already alluded to, When I was a medical student, mostly I was taught, okay, everything in moderation, only the dose makes the thing a poison. So that's a quote from a Swiss philosopher in the 1500s by the name of Paracelsus. And it makes common sense at some level. The idea was that, well, there are only a few chemicals that can really affect us. And that's if you work in places where they use the chemical a lot, but science has really caught up and told us that that notion is not actually reality in many cases. It's timing, it's other exposures that matter, and particularly for chemicals that mess with our signaling molecules, our hormones in our bodies. Those hormones underlie practically every bodily function you can think of, body temperature, metabolism, salt, sugar, even sex are mediated by hormones. And when you look at the data that have accumulated to date, we know of at least a thousand chemicals that can hack our molecular signals. These are synthetic molecules as opposed to our natural hormones. They can hack our molecular functions and thereby contribute to disease and disability across the lifespan. So we have the strongest evidence for five categories of chemicals. was four really when I wrote Sick or Fat or Poor, and really the fifth has come to prime time even since the writing of the book just two years ago. Mm. So we're talking about flame retardants used in electronics and furniture. We're talking about pesticides used in agriculture. We're talking about phthalates and personal care products, cosmetics and food packaging. We're talking about bisphenols used in aluminum can linings and thermal paper receipts. And the newest category that's really come to the fore are these perfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS. They are the basis of a movie that Mark Ruffalo is involved in called Dark Waters, I suggest it. And in particular, these chemicals are used in nonstick cooking and oil and water-resistant clothing. So when you take a step back and think about just those five categories of chemicals, those are the ones that just have the strongest evidence. That doesn't mean there aren't other chemicals out there doing the hacking we're talking about. That's a lot of what we encounter in our homes, in our workplaces, on our buses, in our cars, however we're getting on with our daily lives. It's so overwhelming. It's all around us, right? You just named basically everything in my environment right now. So we're talking about things that can hack our body systems, can mimic certain signaling processes of the body. What does that mean for us? Like what kind of symptoms do you see? What are the results of this? Sure. So the strongest evidence has accumulated for effects on the developing brains of kids. 
and that's because thyroid hormone is particularly crucial for a baby's brain development. It's the growth factor for a baby's brain, brain development, ultimately. And the baby doesn't make thyroid hormone until the second trimester of pregnancy. So if you have synthetic chemicals that are messing with mom's hormonal function, even in the clinically normal range, you can see effects of this disruption that have implication for the child's ability to perform well in school or even have clinically significant effects like autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So these are the flame retardants and the pesticides for which the evidence is strongest. And some people say, well, Leo, come on. This is an IQ point here, two IQ points there. But okay, I get it. If a child comes back from school with one less IQ point, mom might not notice, no offense, pediatrician might not notice, teacher might not notice, but if 100,000 kids come back with one less IQ point, the entire economy notices. And that's because each IQ point is roughly worth 2% of a child's lifetime economic productivity. And if a child makes a million dollars over his or her lifetime on average, that's $20,000. You multiply $20,000 over 4 million kids born each year, that's a bunch of zeros. Those are billions of dollars that are lost in our economy each year. So there's like human personal impact, but there's this broader impact. And then that's just the brain effects, right? So we now know of 50 or more synthetic chemicals that are obesogens, that are literally making us fatter. The poster child, if you will, for chemical obesogens is bisphenol A or BPA. BPA has had a lot of attention because it got banned from baby bottles and sippy cups around 2008. And it has all the molecular features of a chemical obesogen. It makes fat cells bigger, it disrupts the function of a protein that protects the heart called adiponectin. And it's a synthetic estrogen, so it can have sex-specific effects on body mass. We talked already about PFAS. PFAS do another sinister thing. So in people who've lost weight through healthy diet and physical activity intervention, these are nothing that I'm saying takes away or mitigates the importance of diet and physical activity as key pillars of maintaining a healthy weight. But we know that chemical factors are this important third leg to the stool. So these PFAS were measured at the time that they had already lost that weight. And then they followed the adults over time. And the ones who regained their weight faster had higher levels of PFAS. Then they looked even deeper. The PFAS was reducing their metabolic rate, their resting metabolic rate. So basically their body's thermostat was turned the wrong way as a result of this chemical hacking that occurred. So we're not talking about everyone being affected the same way by these chemicals. That's not the message here. But at a broad population scale, when you add up these effects, they really have big impacts on people's lives. And is it a compounding impact as in, are my kids worse off than I was as a kid because these chemicals just don't go away in the environment? So that's a very complicated story to unravel because if you look at time trends and things, you can make all sorts of assumptions and interpretations that don't really align with what's happening in individual people. What I can tell you is that if you look at individual people and you look at their exposure to these chemicals, you can relate them to the incidence of these conditions or the worsening of these conditions in a way that really, if you will, what I do is basically detective work, glorified detective work. You see a fingerprint, you see something fit, the marking of a shoe, you see it, it all matches. So just to go back to the example, the effects of the developing brains on kids, we've seen multiple threads of evidence almost implicate flame retardants and pesticides. So for example, studies of pesticides haven't just measured IQ tests. They've measured brain images, magnetic resonance images to look at parts of the brain that are affected. And what did they find? 
decreases in the size of the frontal and parietal cortex that match the neuropsychological symptoms. So you have, if you will, this preponderance of evidence. Look, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not trying to be a lawyer. And I'm trying to stick to my doctor lane. But the reality is you have substantial evidence that really calls for action. And do the pesticides have an effect on the child in utero while the mother is pregnant? Or is it the child eating foods with pesticides on them during childhood? When does it have the most effect? Well, the evidence is strongest for early life. Now we're talking about pregnancy, fetal exposure to pesticides. Am I going to tell you there are no effects later in life? No. I mean, it's just that we've studied kids so well over the years, and they've been the canaries in the coal mine, if you will. But you even look at adult effects of these exposures, and they're real. There are studies that have shown that consumption of organic food may actually prevent the incidence of certain cancers. Yeah. So life is a window of susceptibility to endocrine disrupting chemicals. Yeah, let's uh, let's double click into pesticides given what we do here at Sakara. I mean, I have to admit my level of frustration that organic food has become this nice to have bougie, expensive option when it's how we all used to eat. It's what I believe every human on the planet deserves. It's closer to nature than anything else, except maybe, you know, regenerative or something like that. But it's our best bet. And why is it that you think, well, I have so many questions around this, but why is it that the general public doesn't understand everything that you're saying. Like I've read a a quote from you that said something like 97% of people are affected by these chemicals, but only 1% know about them. Why don't people know? And why aren't people freaking out as much as I am? (laughs) So there are lots of different ways to go with this comment. There's, let me take one track and then we can pick up others as we go. So let's face it. These are economic decisions that companies are making to produce products a certain way as opposed to others. And so there are vested interests at play. Um, And there are others you can bring on future podcasts that talk about manufactured doubt. The essence of manufactured doubt is that companies, if you will, this goes back to tobacco, for example, the playbook is well known led before that even try to create confusion for the purposes of minimizing in the eyes of the public the effects of things that may be harming their health. And you're seeing that in real time with endocrine disruptors and a variety of chemical exposures. We've seen it with lead, we've seen it with tobacco, We're seeing it with other social movements as well. That can take the form of counter-messaging around particular findings, paid write-ups of studies meant to throw people off the tracks, attacks on scientists. I don't really try to engage too much in that dialogue or debate. I just focus on doing the best science I can and letting independent reviewers tear it apart or like it or, or leave it. And every time I go to get funding, I'm going before colleagues, peers that I don't, that are blinded. I don't even know who they are. So they independently vet my work in a really careful way. And so that kind of rigor and reproducibility is what's my brand, ultimately. What I think happens is that people try to subvert the scientific process. And we've seen it in the pandemic as well in a way that's not really positive or appropriate. And that minimizes the impact here. And particularly another aspect of the messaging is this notion, especially around organic food, that organic food is too expensive. That's changed fundamentally. So I work at Bellevue Hospital, the flagship of the public hospital system for New York City. And ultimately, I now talk about eating organic. 
in a place where I didn't necessarily talk about it 10 years ago. Back 10 years ago, price margins were, were problematic. Now we see the price margins having narrowed. Why is that? Well, market share has gone up. People are woke to it. They appreciate the real benefits which have been identified to eating organic in high as well as in low resource populations. So this is not necessarily a bougie thing to do. This is something where you can quickly reduce your pesticide levels in urine in kids simply by eating organic, by changing your diet. And ultimately, the benefits pay off, as we talked about, in the ability of a kid to do well in school and contribute to broader society. So we've seen in the big box stores, organic goes side by side with conventional without the price differences that people talked about. And then the only other thing I was going to say about eating organic, I may as well say it now, is that the leafy greens and vegetables are the, the fruits and vegetables are the ones where you eat the outer layer and are the most important for eating organic. An avocado, look, I might buy an organic avocado because I'm making a statement that I want to support organic agriculture. Don't get me wrong. But that's my personal decision to make. Is there a direct human health benefit more debatable than when it comes to an organic leafy green or vegetable, let's say a lettuce or a spinach? Yeah, and I always think about it like in a world where we're this inundated with chemicals, I'm always going, if I have the choice, I'm always going to make the conscious choice to reduce my chemical exposure. I feel like, and I'm curious if you agree, like there's not a lot of slack anymore when we're living in this world that is just so toxic. So every time I have the choice, I'm going to choose that organic avocado because I know that my pesticide, herbicide, et cetera, exposure will be that much less. And the choices and the messaging have gotten really tricky. And my approach to this is just boiling down the best science into the simplest messages possible and the clearest messages possible to guide people to do. You don't need a PhD in chemistry and you don't need to break the bank to do the right thing for yourself or your family. So I'm curious, going back to what you said earlier about how the medical system is really focused on treatment rather than prevention, how much of what you do now is focused on prevention? And do you think that this is the way of the future in the medical system or are things going to continue to be treatment focused? So what gives me a lot of hope is the broader movement on climate change, where the medical community has really taken this on with gusto. And, and it's no secret that it's Generation Z millennials that have really brought this to the fore. I'm jealous of them as an Xer that they really led the way in this kind of movement. And it's those people who are in medical school right now and are pushing their mentors or teachers to really communicate these messages and think about prevention and the planet and its impact on human health. And that gives me a lot of hope because when you boil down to it, a big driver of endocrine disruptor exposure is a common origin to the origin of climate change. And that's fossil-based fuel consumption and production. So we're talking about issues that are not necessarily inextricably linked. So you're seeing medical education start to take this on. Is it going to go fully the way I would like in a preventative medicine movement? Maybe not as fast as I would like, but it's making substantial progress. Yeah, what you just said just expanded my mind a bit to think about how it's the same things that are affecting our planet that are affecting our health, right? The pesticides getting flushed into our waterways has an effect on the microbes in our soils in how our planet works as a whole and it is doing the same thing inside of our bodies, right? The pandemic really brought the issue of planetary health home in a deep way. Look, we've had a variety of viral pandemics fly by. We just were lucky with them. Ebola, MERS, the first SARS, and 
the reason why we're seeing more pandemics and we'll see more in the years to come, which is quite frightening when you think about it. SARS-CoV-2 in some ways is a weak virus, is that you have climate change and deforestation literally wiping out certain parts of the planet and creating a greater, more facile connection between microbes and pathogens and humans. And that has set in force the loop that we see today. And and by the way, chemicals are not free of blame here in that early on in the pandemic, we saw air pollution associated with greater mortality, long-term air pollution. That was because air pollution contributes to obesity, contributes to high blood pressure, contributes to asthma, contributes to diabetes, all risk factors for severe SARS-CoV-2 infection. But later on, the PFOS came onto the scene. We already knew that PFOS messed with T cells, messed with our immune system, messed with the cytokines, the first responders in our body to infections. And ultimately, what people realized is it doesn't just mess with the immune responses to normal vaccines or cause coughs or colds in kids, which it does as a result of prenatal exposure. Then people looked at samples from people who were affected by SARS-CoV-2, and they looked at severity in relationship to levels of the PFOS. And unfortunately, the PFOS were associated with worse disease. So we're still in early times in understanding the effects of synthetic chemicals on immune system. But in general, we are taking a broader, more integrated framework that's considering environmental factors and their impact on immunity as well. Are you worried? I have a lot of hope. The way I talk about these things, people wonder whether I'm inhaling something or, on the, or doing something <laughs> on the side. But the fact is, we got BPA out of Bay Bottles and Sippy Cups in less than a year. And that was because consumers rose up, mostly moms, frankly, and said, no, 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 no. You companies that are making my baby bottles, you get that BPA of baby bottles. So the companies ran it to the FDA, insisted on a ban. And guess what? BPA was banned in baby bottles and sippy cups. It wasn't banned in aluminum cans, which is a whole other discussion. I consider that a policy failure by the Food and Drug Administration. But more recently, took a study of just five, five food packages, buffet-style food packages for two major supermarket chains to get PFAS out of the food packaging. So literally on Instagram and Twitter, you saw these companies pushing aside their food packages and out they went and they were replaced by things free of PFAS. Now, am I saying that that alternative is free of problems, I'm not totally convinced. We've got a huge policy problem too. So you can walk and chew gum. You can have these consumer movements driving the change you seek, and you can work on policymakers to get the changes that are needed at a more systemic level. So that is why I get up every day, mostly with a smile. I wouldn't say every day is like that, but I don't get hopeless by seeing the reality that we're facing. It just shows how important it is to get this information out into the world, how important it is to be talking about it, that you're putting it on Instagram, which I'm sure is not easy as a doctor to be putting your your views out there in the world every day as certain people have feelings and emotions about what you're talking about. But it's this type of information. To me, I think that the consumer almost has more power than politics at this point. I mean, we are more powerful than in the past. And when we have the right information and right knowledge, we're able to create real change. But getting that knowledge is... That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's so difficult because what I always thought was the BPA is gone, but wasn't it replaced with like BPS, which is just as bad, if not worse. So, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but it's like, you have to know so much in order to make sure you're holding these companies accountable, but then you're holding them accountable to fix the situation in the right way. You just have to know so much. Yeah. So there are 40 or so artists formerly known as BPA. (laughs) 
We've talked about BPS. I, I have to give a homage to Prince. That's my generation, if you will. <laughs> and what little we know about BPS is it's as estrogenic, as persistent in the environment, and as toxic to embryos. So we've whacked a mole, and there's another mole that's come up. That's a real issue. And that's why we do need systemic policy change. But if you don't try, change doesn't happen. And trust me that the companies that are changing are feeling the expense. They're going to pass it to the consumer. That's understandable. But they don't want to change on a dime. The fact that they change means they're paying attention. And that doesn't mean you can stop the attention and really push people harder. We have to keep that up. But that's why we have to keep at it. And we, we do need to regulate chemicals as classes. If we could get chemicals across a category off the board for this BPS reason, that would go a long way as well. And even the food industry needs so much more oversight. And I think there should be more classifications than just conventional and organic. And I do think that it should be, I mean, I'm no policy expert, but I do see the harm in allowing companies to use words like natural and free range, which I've heard bothers you a lot too. I mean, it's a blatant lie. Like it means absolutely nothing. And then I can't even begin to tell you all the choices we make here at Sakara to make sure our clients are getting the cleanest possible food on the planet. But there's no way for us to communicate that other than organic, because that's the only thing that people understand. And so Sure, we'd like people to know how much we're looking out for them. But ultimately, I just want consumers to be that educated around what they're putting in their bodies. But it's, as you said, it's so complicated and it's not reflected well in the vernacular. One thing that I saw was my sister lives in Colorado and they're pretty progressive when it comes to marijuana. And we went into one of the pot stores And on the packaging, it listed every herbicide or pesticide or what type of fertilizer was used to grow the plant. And I thought, now this is more modern. This is progressive. Could we get that list on our fruits and vegetables of every single ingredient that actually went into growing it? Or could we get on that can of seltzer water or whatever else you're drinking the list of what is included in the packaging, like really giving people that type of transparency so that we can make our own decisions for ourselves, but being fully informed. That's the biggest issue that we can hit and have the biggest impact ultimately. We need to know what's in the products we buy. This is what Adam Smith, the father of modern economics, would love. You know, he's an environmental health advocate, even though he's in his grave right now. You don't think of him as somebody who would be an environmental, unless you think of him as someone who really just thinks about dollars and cents. But when you create a product that doesn't have the information on, you can't really compare brands in an effective way. The market is not sufficiently competitive. And in addition, you have chemical contamination impacting other people outside the transaction. That's called externalities in the economist's term. And when you have externalities, you overproduce a chemical compared to the societally optimal amount. The price is too low. It's not that we're trying to zero out chemical exposures necessarily. Certain ones we probably do need to zero out because the societal cost is too great to bear. But Often what we're dealing with is that we have an imbalance in the interests, and that's often because of politics, let's face it, and that the companies that make these products have built up a sufficient lobbying operation and operation to have political power as well. It's refreshing to see progressive movements really go in the direction of being transparent about those exposures. I'm kind of surprised to see that much on a label to begin with because those companies might actually need to be ashamed about what they're putting into people. Ultimately, if it's herbicides and certain pesticides in particular that have effects on adults as well as kids. 
And so to me, the, those labeling movements give me hope because people who care will select and that will drive market share and drive profits. Two things. Can you tell me the top three things that you yourself avoid at all costs? And then is it the same or different if we have kids that our kids should be avoiding? So a big category that I've even gotten more extreme about with time is plastic. We need to renegotiate our relationship with plastic. Mm -hmm. We use too much plastic, their ecological effects and their human health effects. We don't know much about microplastics, but that's a whole nother mess. And maybe more than just what's in fish and, and contaminating other aquatic wildlife. We used to think that three, six, and seven were the only bad ones to think about. Those are the recycling numbers on plastic. Three for phthalates, six for styrene and own carcinogens, seven for the bisphenols that we talked about already. Now, the reality is there are a lot of chemical additives that are not really tested in plastic to begin with. So even when you're using them on a regular basis, not even microwaving or machine dishwashing, those additives get into food because they're not covalently bound to the plastic. Then if you have a polymer and you're breaking it down by heating it or machine dishwashing it, that adds even more problems to the mix. So we are very much in our household a glass and stainless steel. I'm not saying we don't have plastic. That's not impossible to avoid. There are people very vocal on social media who do a terrific job of zeroing out their plastic. My hat's off. I haven't been able to do that with the bandwidth that I have, but I am pretty extreme in reducing that. So that is really something that has changed for me over the years. That takes all top three. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's a lot in there. When I talk to folks about the safe and simple steps, it's really about renegotiating their relationship with plastic, eating organic, and then avoiding canned food. Yes, flame retardants are terribly important. Nonstick cooking is important. Using a wet mop, recirculating the air are also safe and simple steps. I mean, one of the challenges of being a pediatrician is I, you, you have to pick one or two things in each visit to focus on. And you have to write it down, right? Or put it on something that's like a proper prescription. Because ultimately, that's what's going to be left for the next time you're at the visit. And you go, did you do X? And they'll say no. Did you do Y? And they'll say yes. One for two is not bad. It's a good baseball batting average, at least. And that's just the reality of, of what we talk about in people's eyes. There's only so much of an attention span and ability yeah. to change on a dime. And I think that it's true what you were saying. There are so many different choices, and it's hard to live a life that is perfect. So at Sakara, we make everything organic. All of the produce we source is organic. Everything that goes into our meals and our products is organic. We don't use any nonstick pots and pans or cookware in our facilities to prepare the meals. But we do use plastic containers in order to ship it. The food goes in cold it stays in a cold chain all the way from the kitchen to your refrigerator. And then we recommend to our clients that they plate those meals into a dish and eat with a fork, not a plastic <laughs> utensil and that type of thing. And we've searched for other solutions and we haven't been able to find anything that's better than this PET number one plastic in order to keep the food safe and fresh all the way to your door. And it's 100% curbside recyclable versus other options like compostable materials, which then you need commercial composting facilities in order to compost it. And actually the compostable packaging has a lot of chemicals in it as well. And we can't ship glass through the mail. And right is a bit expensive. So it's been a really big challenge for us to do this. So we do the absolute best that we can do with the decisions and the options that we have. Danielle and I talk about this all the time. Our next business, <laughs> you know, years away in the future is going to be in packaging, but hopefully somebody else will come up with a solution 
prior to that. And I think about, you know, why would a can company go from a BPA to a BPS? Probably because there's a problem there and they haven't been able to find the solution. And so I think with all of this education coming out around this and people being motivated, Danielle and I are both mothers and we're extremely motivated around all of this. Hence why we brought you on our podcast today. For me, my hope is that it will stimulate innovation out in the world to find solutions that are 100% safe and healthy. But for the meantime, in my own personal life and household, I do the best that I can do, like Danielle was saying, to minimize. And that, for me, makes my choices around that if my food comes in plastic, I'm okay with that knowing exactly how that plastic was treated before it got to me. It's a very difficult trade-off, and I think you hit the nail on the head, that we can't beat ourselves up about every single decision we make. It is about doing the best possible and moving on from that moment and thinking forward, not backwards. So I talk to a lot of families who say, what, you know, oh, no, I, I, I got exposed to this in utero. I'm just stuck with it. And so I don't care about endocrine disruption. And I say, well, the reality is you can do a lot going forward by reducing your exposure. There are so many exposures out there and there's so much hope in prospective prevention. Yes. Are there perfect solutions out there for these not yet. There's a huge market for it. And there are companies jumping in to really take the lead that didn't do that 10 years ago. You just didn't see those options out there. We've got huge problems with recyclability at a local level and a national level. This is a great big mess. Do I believe we can get to a point where we can find another way? Yes. At the same time, you have to hold those companies accountable so we don't back them all. And so if you're using an alternative free of plastic, it's got to be free of or testing for other chemical exposures that may have untoward impacts. You don't want to whack them all. That's really the bottom line. What can you do? You can make a decision on what you decide to put on your plate every single day. And that's going to be one of your first barriers for your, your immune system and, and gut health is making sure you're eating the right things every single day so that your body even has the nourishment it needs to fight everything from what's on your couch to what you're breathing in every single day. It doesn't have to be this hard about, mm -hmm. but we've come so far. Look at the data nationally about chemical exposures like BPA, and they've dropped substantially. Certain phthalates have dropped substantially over time. So there's a lot of hope there in that we can see the change happening. It takes years at a population level, but if you change your practices, you can reduce your urinary levels of these chemicals in days in many cases. You can see hormonal changes in weeks. You can see long-term changes for your health in months so that these short, medium, or long-term benefits to reducing your exposure. Yeah, I remember reading something that you talked about, that if somebody switches from kind of a more conventional diet to organic, that you can measure the level of pesticides in their body, and it's like a dramatic decrease, just making that one choice. Is that right? Yes. And, and again, and that's in low income as well as in high income populations. Right. So a lot of people make this false narrative up that this is only for the well-to-do. No. The same is true for phthalates. They saw young Latina teens in an agricultural community reduce their levels of certain phenols just by reading the labels and picking and choosing what cosmetics and personal care products they used. So please don't tell me that you can't reduce your exposure if you're in a resource-limited context. Yes, there are food deserts, for example, and that makes things especially difficult for picking and choosing. 
the best foods. The pandemic has not made things easier. That's for sure. But you can have your cake and eat it too. And now speaking of cake, <laughs> I am curious about, you talked about these obesogens and how these chemicals can lead to obesity. And I think that sometimes it can be difficult for people to make change for themselves for health purposes, but vanity can often drive real change in lifestyle. So I want to go back to this and ask about how much of weight when it comes to obesity comes from these, the chemicals from our environment, chemicals in our food versus the actual food that we're eating? That's an impossible question to answer for a couple of reasons, but I can tell you more simply and precisely what we know about a few chemicals. So when you look at the percent of obesity that can be tied to prenatal exposure, let's say to bisphenol A, it's in the range of 2%. Now that may not seem like a big number, but the reality is you prevent enough childhood obesity by doing that to save $2 billion in short and long-term health costs associated with obesity. Because kids who are obese are more likely to be obese as adults. Adults who are obese are more likely to have long-term consequences of their obesity. So we have this, you know, this situation where there, you think you're having a small impact but the impact of preventing these exposures can be huge with benefits that outweigh the cost. So we modeled the benefits of preventing EPA exposure by getting VPA out of aluminum can linings. And what we found just from two outcomes, childhood obesity, adult cardiovascular disease, we found in some scenarios, net economic benefits by substituting with a safer alternative that cost just 2.2 cents on the can. So, when people tell me, oh, it's too expensive for a company to change its ways, that's the study I cite right away. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to me because I do talk to some people out there and they're saying, I eat right, I exercise, and yet my weight doesn't change. And I think a lot of different things go into that. But the idea that the chemicals in our environment could have an impact is often something not talked about. And it's something that it's not visible. It's in our furniture. It's in everything that you mentioned in our air and yet has an effect on our bodies in such a profound way. I was just going to ask a question about children. So if you have a patient that you notice maybe has some cognitive decline or something like a cognitive disorder like ADD, We've talked about kind of things to avoid and ways to minimize your exposure to these toxins. Is there anything that you recommend that people do so the body is better suited to, to handle what it's already been exposed to? So a couple things, first of all. So a lot of people talk about sauna and other treatments to facilitate excretion. I don't think there's evidence to support benefits. I have seen papers suggesting a possible excretion of these chemicals through sweat I don't disagree. They are excreted by sweat, but I don't think that provides, well, I'll take the, I don't think there's not evidence to support definitive benefits in terms of human health outcomes or in overall measures of exposure. Even I think what's more important as much as I understand why people are focused on sauna treatments, chelation, a host of other treatments to get these chemicals out really the message here is about proactive prevention. And when you talk to people who have taken these safe and simple steps, even with the conditions they already have that may have been due to past exposure, you can actually see potential human health benefits. So this is a little off the beaten trail, but we did a study of, of kids with chronic kidney disease. These are kids who already have kidneys that are not functioning well. We looked at their levels of bisphenols and phthalates. Their levels of phthalates were associated with accelerated declines in their kidney function, even when they already had kidney disease. So that to me suggests very clearly there are potential benefits to 
preventing the worsening of disease in relationship to these exposures. Take that back to a kid with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. There are hormonal effects that may amp or reduce symptoms. Can I trace a specific study that speaks to childhood exposure, reducing that exposure and changes in behavior, not directly, but the biological plausibility is there. It's just the chronicity disease example is a good example of a study that's looked at a population of people who've already had the disease and shown that you can reduce these exposures and potentially reduce their disease. Okay. So the take-home message is the number one thing you can do is just reduce your exposure. The best defense is prevent. All right. I can totally see myself. I'm like, I'm already one of those crazy mothers, but now I feel like, you know, because I'm already so crazy around food, but it's so hard not to go crazy about all of this. Like, do you find yourself going crazy? Like, do you wonder what's in your couch? Did you make sure you you didn't buy a a couch with flame retardants? (laughs) We tried really hard. It's easier now because the labeling requirement in California is such that you have to declare flame retardants in or out Mm. of the upholstery. And so that's helpful. I'm not going to tell you I wasn't exposed to endocrine disrupting chemicals at a host of different times in my life where I wasn't aware of these issues. Remember, in medical school, I didn't get taught about this. I learned it more or less on my own or my own initiative at least. And what about clothing? Because plastic is in all of our clothing. So like, do you make sure that you buy 100% cotton, linen, whatever? This is not something that I have perfected as an art. I'm also a runner. And so a lot of athletic gear and athleisure gear has plastics. It has PFAS. Now, I would say this from a direct human exposure perspective, the direct human contact with those plastic clothing are likely not to produce the same degree of exposure as if you're intentionally eating food that's come into contact with food packaging. Mm -hmm. I'm saying not likely because it's not been fully controlled and studied maybe the way that I would like to say definitively, but... Suffice it to say that when you look at the plausible routes of exposure, you're talking about creams and lotions that absorb more directly into skin as opposed to plastic material where there's less heat sensitivity. It's not like you're running it through a microwave. Right. And does the amount of time that food lives in that plastic, does that also have an effect on it? So if it's in a food container for three days versus like water in a water bottle that lives on a shelf for two years? That's hard to really distinguish in a a data-driven kind of exercise. There are so many factors that go into it. So it's the plastic itself. It's the time of use. It's the characteristics of the water itself, hard water as opposed to soft water, that may be a factor, the heat. So I wouldn't focus as much on what plastic water bottle as opposed to doing things to get water without using plastic bottles. Yep. Yeah. And for all the Saqqara lights listings, get your meals, plate them, never microwave, rinse them, then recycle them. I remember growing up in a household where you always just put your plastic meals in the microwave. And I'm sure there's still so many people doing that. And it's just amazing to me when I think about all of these choices throughout our day that we have. And I guess that's been the theme throughout this conversation is just that we have to trust that if people know that all these choices have a huge impact, that then they'll make the right ones. Is that what you believe? It's about looking forward, not backward. Yeah. Ultimately, there are lots of things in my life not having anything to do with endocrine disruptors that I probably wish I had that moment back. But the same principle applies. It's done, but at the same time, there's a lot we can do to improve our life going forward. Well, hopefully 
you know, we're even just having this conversation is helping bring more awareness so that we can all make better choices and vote with our dollars and hopefully be able to change policy as well. And that we can create a healthier, safer environment for our children and future generations. So I want to thank you for the work that you're doing to help spread this word out into the world. I hope everybody follows you on Instagram because Danielle sent me your work and it was very inspirational. But before we leave, we ask all of our guests to share something that we call light work with our listeners. So this is either a practice or perhaps a challenge of some sort to help our listeners put what we've talked about today into action in their own lives. Great. I go back to what I picked up, uh, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, and that is much like I, as a doctor, will write one or two things down for patients to focus on. Sometimes a practice I'll take in my own life is if I want to aspire to do something better each day, I write it down and I put it at the top of my screen or the top of my of my desk or even tie it goofy. I'll tie something around my finger or to remind myself. It goes a long way to reminding and grounding. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So write down two things that you want to make a change. Or even one. Or even just a one start thing. for a day. One thing. And I think for me, a good place that I like to put it is on a sticky note. I have these little post-it sticky notes and then can just put it right on my computer screen right there so that I see it. Yeah, I love that because you do need reminders, right? It's like even if I think about trying to help my mom understand why she needs to eat organic, it's like she will remember at breakfast and then life happens and she'll forget at lunch. So. I love that as a practice. If we want to prioritize something, we have to remember it. Absolutely. Well, Well, thank thank you you so so much. much. Thank you for coming on today, for sharing your knowledge and continuing to spread this information out in the world. We appreciate you and what you do. My pleasure. It was great being here and talking to you guys. All right. Thanks so much. This conversation with Dr. Leo could definitely be overwhelming. I mean, just hearing about all of the chemicals that surround us every single day and everything from the clothes that we're wearing to the personal care products that we use to the couch that we're sitting on, even just the air that we're breathing. There are chemicals everywhere and that those chemicals can have a real effect on our bodies, and our children, both being moms, you a second-time mom and me a first-time mom, and having little babies. It makes me think a lot about my choices and what I can do to help set him up for the healthiest future. And it was helpful to hear that he's hopeful, Mm -hmm. has a hopeful outlook, because it can be scary. And I think for me, what makes me feel comfortable and confident in the world is just making the best choices where I can and not letting the rest completely scare me or stress me out. I feel like my takeaway ended up being there's a lot that you actually can do as a consumer. And if you make the right choices, like eating organic, that you can greatly reduce your risk and your exposure to these toxic chemicals. Yeah, even just that one choice has such a big effect. I mean, food is something that you do three or more times a day. And so that's three or more times a day that you can make the choice to reduce your chemical intake into your body. Other things like using clean beauty products, which I'm definitely passionate about as well, is another great place to start. Yeah. And I think when you make decisions like buying clean beauty products and buying organic, you really are making a choice for others as well, because you're pushing 
the needle toward more clean products in the world versus not. So the more you buy organic, the more you buy clean beauty, the more the demand goes up and it makes it more possible for it to be a choice for everyone. Yeah, so true. Hopefully this podcast and some of our others will help inspire more people to make healthy choices for themselves. And through that, help steer the world in a cleaner direction. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. <laughs> <laughs>